and welcome to Meeting Room 7. This is the first in a series of podcasts from the Steves and Bolton IP team, during which we will be discussing patent licensing uh, with a focus in the life sciences world. I'm Charlie Tillett, I'm a partner in the IP team, and I also head up our sector, life sciences sector team here at Steves and Bolton. I'm joined today by three teammates who are also members of our IP team. First up, we've got Tom Lingard, who is an IP partner and heads up our IP team. Hello. Hi, Tom. We've got Tom Collins, who is a senior associate in our IP team. Hello. And last but not least, Astrid Arnold, who is our professional support lawyer. Hello. So this first podcast, which we've called Defining the Deal, is about the importance of taking the time at the very outset of the licensing um, journey to clearly define the scope of the rights being licensed. So we're going to talk on various points which are really fundamental to getting the license right. And just to mention here that we are going to be looking in particular at sort of a more simple form of license, so not the specifics of joint venture agreements and collaboration agreements, but we will come back to those later in the podcast series. So at the beginning of the license, everybody's anxious to get on with the deal and not hold up the important work uh, and the real driver behind the license. So Tom Lingard, talk us through why it's important to spend time getting it all right at the beginning. Well, this might be sort of the last thing that everyone wants to hear on a podcast, a bunch of lawyers explaining how everything might go wrong. However, (laughs) bear with us because there are are reasons for that. Um, As you said, Charlie, there's... um, many times a commercial deal there's a rush to get it done and a vast percentage of the time you things will proceed in a perfectly normal way there'll be no problems the lawyers may or may not even know the deal has happened everything will go according to plan and um there no, no issues will arise and i've certainly seen some terrible agreements that had they ever been put before a court would have had some some real difficulties but in reality licensing arrangements are valuable and long-lasting agreements and they're very important to the parties concerned so spending some time at the start thinking about exactly what they're covering and what might happen if things go wrong is is really important and there are degrees and and there are different uh, amounts of effort one can put into that but realistically it is the old adage that lawyers trot out but a pinch of prevention is worth a pound of cure and if you can um, have a few perhaps potentially awkward conversations at the start it can mean that no no problems arise in the future which is obviously what everyone is is after. So some short-term pain needed for long-term gain. Okay so the kind of issues that might need to be addressed in relation to the scope of the licensed patented technology let's have a look at that now there's of course two sides to every story and there are going to be at least two parties to every license and each party is going to have a slightly different commercial priority here. So from the perspective of the licensor, Tom Collins, what should the licensor be thinking about in particular here? In carrying out appropriate initial due diligence within the licensor's own organisation will certainly be important, particularly when licensing out new technology or where such technology isn't licensed out on a regular basis. That might include checking all the relevant patents are filed in the name of the right group company, checking consent for any rights being sub-licensed, and also checking there's no conflict with licenses granted to others. Another thing that the licensor needs to bear in mind is enticement of validity challenges and any infringement issues associated with the technology that's being licensed. This all feeds into the type of warranties and potentially even indemnities that the licensor might be willing to give and the need for any disclosures that a licensor might need to give at the outset of the license relationship. 
the license would also want to be considering any carve-outs that might be needed, uh, which might include field of use limitations, geographical restrictions, and also how to address retained rights, such as for academic institutions in particular, the ability to retain the right to carry out their own research and non-profit activities, even when they've granted an exclusive license. So I think those are, those are probably the, the main things you'd be thinking of from a license source perspective. Okay, thanks, Tom. And on the flip side then, if you were the licensee in this scenario, what would be key for the licensee to be keeping in mind? Astrid. Well, uh, the licensee is likely to be making quite a substantial investment here, particularly if it's a manufacturing research and development project. So it really wants to feel as comfortable as possible that the licensor can deliver on things like title, validity and so on. So I think the least we would want to see would be detailed information about ownership of the patents and the other rights being licensed, perhaps searches that the um, licensor has carried out to, to show what those are, and also uh, to understand any gaps in the license technology that may require third-party licenses, as all that will feed into payment uh, later, of course. Mm, that's right. And, and licensees will often do their own freedom to operate researches to make sure that they feel comfortable uh, yes. um, before uh, they sign up. It's surprising uh, what a big difference there is between um, licensees on that sort of issue, isn't, mm. isn't it? Yeah, that's so, right. So far as fields of use, I would just um, mention from the licensees' point of view that um, generally they want a wider rather than narrower, particularly if you've got a, a research element. Um, there's always an eye to the future, what improvements might be made, how might things change, how might the um, technology be applied in different areas. So a, a wide, as wide as possible. One also wants to think about the idea that um, because in, improvements may be being made uh, in the future, you might need the license to be wider in scope than it is to begin with. So a few options in there, perhaps. Sure. Okay, thank you. And a topic that often comes up, which is perhaps less well understood, but can be hugely financially valuable, are SPC, supplementary certificates, um, which is a sort of a follow on to the patent protection. Tom, can you um, talk to us a little bit about what they are and why they're important? Sure. So SPCs are an IP right that serve in, as an extension to a patent right, as you mentioned, and they apply to specific pharmaceutical and plant protection products that have been authorised by regulatory authorities. They're intended to improve the protection of innovation in the pharmaceutical sector and to compensate for the delay that can be caused by having to go and seek marketing authorizations. The inclusion of SBCs in licenses can be a bit of a grey area. Um, from a license source perspective, they wish to retain the right to decide whether or not to apply for an SBC, and sometimes consultation with a licensee may be needed, and it's even assistance from the licensee as well. But I think fundamentally the license should address the question of whether SBCs are included expressly at the outset to be clear about whether present and future SBCs and extensions are indeed included. On the one hand, expressly including the SBCs could be beneficial to the licensor in terms of extending the, the life of the royalty revenue. But looking at on the, others, on, the, on the other side of the fence, you may wish to revisit that point further down the line and 
have another look again at what the relevant commercial terms are for the licensing of the SPC. So there's a balance to be struck there. And it's not something that's always given enough thought at the outset for license negotiations. Well, speaking for the licensee again, um, we would definitely agree uh, that the position should be clear in the license express wording. Definitely go for that. So from the licensee's point of view, um, we need to bear in mind that the SPC comes in at a time when a, a medical product is likely to be at its most established and profitable. If it is successful, then the SPC is, is a big issue because uh, there's a lot of um, profit in it potentially. Uh, including the SPC will have implications for the license term, of course, and also uh, for royalties. So that's something to, to bear in mind. As licensee, we'd normally be pressing for automatic inclusion of the SPC, but there may also be circumstances in which the licensee doesn't really want a license under the SPC, or else at the beginning, it's unsure whether it will want such a license. So some sort of option might be uh, good. If it's an exclusive license, then the licensee will expect to be consulted uh, as to whether an SPC is going to be applied for. Although I would say that normally the decision, final decision lies with the licensor. Okay, so again, a theme that runs through lots of these points is that clarity is, is really important. Mm. And I, I suppose it's the job for us lawyers to try and make sure these points are made clear in the license without making it a 100 page document that everyone falls asleep halfway through. Um, another loyally point, just being a little bit negative, thinking of other pitfalls that can arrive, arise in relation to the scope of the license. What other points do we need to be keeping in mind here? Back to me for the gloom. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> can always rely on you, Tom. <laughs> I mean, there'll be quite a few things. Um, uh, these are the pitfalls that will come up in, in future episodes, but the, the key ones to think about when defining the deal, I would say, would be. The, the exclusivity of the license is it exclusive non-exclusive or a sole license sometimes it's pretty clear from the commercial arrangement but those terms are often not very well understood and their precise meaning can differ between jurisdictions and even if a license is exclusive either by territory for example um, or for a particular period of time is that only temporary does it then move to a non-exclusive basis or you know are there are there differences and do different royalty rates apply depending on on that sort of um, that part of the deal. The other point, which we'll definitely cover in a lot more detail in the future is, is payment. You know, what is the reciprocal arrangement here for this license? We've talked about how JVs and collaborations will be covered, but um, there's a whole variety of ways in which the commercial deal and the license fee, if any, that is being paid um, will need to be in the front of the party's minds at the start. Sometimes there might be an upfront lump sum license fee, um, and it's almost like a quasi-assignment of, of the rights. Sometimes there'll be a tiered structure. Sometimes it will depend on um, you know, whether a product results, and if so, how that's exploited and by whom. So it's really important to be clear upfront where you can be certain about the financial terms and where you can't, not just put in an agreement to agree or something vague and hope that everything will be okay, but to put in the best mechanism you can to make sure that that those, um, those difficulties don't arise further down the line because if a product does result and there's a lot of money flowing around as a result of the technology, those conversations just get exponentially harder. And then the other true gloomy lawyer point is about termination. When everyone's in the, uh, the sunny uplands of a new collaboration, the last thing everyone wants to think about is what the happens end. if they fall out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and when it all goes wrong. But 
actually, it's a very simple question. Um, you know, what happens if one of you goes bust? What happens if, you know, you, one of you wants to be end up being bought by a competitor? Those are all perfectly foreseeable circumstances. And just giving a bit of thought to what would happen to the licensed technology in that situation is, again, really valuable to do at the start. Absolutely. Um, so we've got we've got our some clarity hopefully now on the patents and SPCs and we're a bit more organized and we thought about some of the pitfalls. But parents patents are sorry for the parents. <laughs> <laughs> but patents are a risky and a somewhat, I suppose, unstable asset. And there's always a chance that there'll be a successful validity challenge or a successful entitlement challenge. And we saw, for example, a bit of a high profile example with the CRISPR gene editing patents here. So how are we going to deal with the risk of invalidity? Um, let's look perhaps first at the licensees main concerns in this area and how we'd address that in the, the license. Well, the licensee um, wants to avoid a situation where it's paying for technology that its competitors can use for free. And for this reason, it doesn't want to be tied down to paying royalties on an invalid patent. The common solution to that uh, is to provide in the license that royalties are only payable on products uh, that would infringe a valid claim. You then define a valid claim as being one for which invalidity has not been finally established in court. So that provides quite a clear mechanism under the license for deciding when uh, royalties are no longer payable because of invalidity. It's an advantage because it means that the parties don't have to dispute uh, under the contract the question of validity. If the uh, licensee wants to raise validity, it needs to go to uh, the patent office or to the court and to challenge the validity of, of the patent formally. That's right. And even actually the valid claims definition itself can become a point of negotiation in the license. The licensee can quite often want to add detail to the exact circumstances in which a claim um, has been deemed to have failed and is therefore no longer considered to be a valid claim. Or perhaps there's discussion about the number of years that a claim, the patent application um, has been pending and how long that can sit within the valid claims definition. Um, and thinking about patent applications, how do we best deal with these in a license? Well, the, they're obviously of crucial importance because it can take three, five, possibly more years to, to get a patent through to grant. Um, and certainly when one is rushing to exploit new and potentially valuable technology, you don't have time to wait for that. So um, it's important they're covered clearly in a way we've, we've already discussed. And from a licensor's perspective, you certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to give a warranty that any patent application you are licensing will necessarily proceed to grant. Um, there's always a risk that claims will change substantially between the application being filed and it being granted. And those claims might vary between countries. Um, and that's something that might need to be taken into account um, in the definition of, of the licensed product. Uh, in some circumstances, particularly if there's a more of a collaborative element, um, it may be that the the, the technology is, is really being developed on the on the hoof, if you like, by the licensee. And so collaboration and assistance between the licensee and the licensor will be important for progressing the applications and also potentially a discussion about who's actually going to foot the bill, because it may be that the licensee has interests in territories which 
you know, uh, potentially valuable to the licensee, but the licensor doesn't want to have to pay the fees for, for pursuing that. And then finally, yes, the right to terminate or the circumstances in which termination might arise if there's no longer a possibility of any of the pending applications that existed at the point the license was entered into of proceeding to grant. Uh, and at that point, that's where the question of how the interactions of um, the patents and applications and the know-how licensed under the agreement are particularly important. Mm, absolutely. And of course, that's another hugely important part of IP is the non-patented aspect of the technology, um, which in, in these circumstances is mostly going to be the valuable know-how. So looking at know-how then and how we deal with this in, in the license, and we've seen how valuable know-how can be, um, particularly recently with the mRNA um, COVID vaccines, um, and it's obviously of crucial importance here. So Firstly, looking at the issues that arise for the licensor in terms of definition and the know-how, ownership of the know-how, what would we say here? So e-competition requires the know-how to be secret, substantial and verifiable or identifiable, as sometimes referred to. Otherwise, there'll be a risk that the agreement will be regarded as anti-competitive and potentially unenforceable. But quite apart from any competition law issues, these characteristics are exactly what the licensor will need to show to a court in order to enforce a license. So it's a good example of how the drafting license should look ahead to potential enforcement further down the line. Identifying what the know-how is is obviously one of the key issues. And there's a balance to be had because a detailed definition of secret know-how wouldn't normally be included. And often it would be a general description by reference to a separate list of confidential documents. And if you're stepping into the shoes of the licensor, you wouldn't want to be overly prescriptive as otherwise you risk creating an unduly narrow definition of know-how, which makes it hard to enforce further down the line. But with that said, there also needs to be some legal certainty. So it's important to strike that balance. For particularly sensitive know-how, a, a licensor might also want to consider restricting access to named representatives. And it's also very important to keep any know-how suite of documents or platform, whatever it may be, uh, updated and well documented um, when it comes to having to enforce this or rely upon this further down the line. And to ensure that the know-how is legally owned by the licensor and that the secrecy is maintained, having robust provisions in employment contracts and any contracts with third-party contractors is also very important. This might even include having individual NDAs with those that are working on it. And I think another final consideration is when the license agreement comes to an end, whether that's by termination or otherwise, the licensor will always want to ensure that there's appropriate protections to make sure that the know-how is returned or destroyed and that there's no further on reduced by the licensee. And this all feeds into the overall picture of how, picture of how the know-how is protected and whether it is actually kept secret and substantial over the life course of the agreement. Well, the licensee... Um, wants the secret know-how to be defined as, as clearly as possible. Uh, generally, we'd like it to be kept to quite a narrow uh, description and not to claim any general background knowledge where there may be some question as to whether the information really is in, in the public domain. That sort of vague description puts the uh, licensee immediately at, at risk of, of, of dispute. So we're going to be looking for a narrow description of the um, confidential know-how where we're acting for the um, licensee. Okay, so it's a balance we need to strike here. Obviously, from the licensor perspective, they're 
keen to make sure that anything of, of value that they provide to the licensee is going to be protected. Um, but for the licensee, it, they need to be clear on exactly what it is that they're contractually bound to protect so that the whole organization, they understand the parameters of what they've got and how, how they can use it. Okay, so thinking now about uh, as the life of, of the um, patent license goes on, and the, the license may last for many years, of course, and during this time, the technology is likely to be developing and new things are likely to be um, cropping up, which may be very important to the value of the technology. The developments to technology are usually dealt with um, in licenses by way of the term improvements. So how can we deal with improvements in a fair way um, within the license? Let's look first of all at how we would do that from the licensor's perspective. Sure. So I think obviously improvements could be driven by both the licensor, the licensee, or sometimes both parties. And it's very difficult to predict at the outset what any kind of improvement might be. There isn't any statutory definition of what constitutes an improvement, but it is important to think about the relevant fields of use and potential therapeutic applications that, that may well come into play, as improvements can affect the term of the agreement and also payment obligations. So it is obviously a very important consideration. From the licensor's point of view, they would often want to resist including any improvements automatically, as it will want the freedom to require further remuneration under the license to use it itself, or potentially to license it to other parties. But that said, where there's a strong relationship, the licensor also has a vested interest in making sure that it's the technology is successfully commercialized by their licensees, and it may well be there's an incentive to offer the improvements to maintain that. I think another important consideration is that it may well be that the licensee is generating important improvements that the licensor will want to have access to, to ensure it can exploit the technology properly itself. So there does need to be a certain degree of reciprocity here, and it's difficult to have it both ways if you're the licensor. I think probably one other thing to mention is that for academics, um, the funding grants and relevant agreements can come into play here and kind of having a commitment to make improvements available could affect those obligations. I think from a licensee's point of view, it's absolutely true. It's difficult to have it both ways. You put your um, finger on the, the point there. Uh, on the one hand, the licensee would like to obtain all the uh, licensor's updates and improvements because otherwise he may be put in a position where he can't compete with others on the market. This is very rarely going to be acceptable to the to the licensor so you've got an immediate difficulty between the licensee and the licensor which is difficult to resolve sometimes it, you can put terms into the uh, original license which can which can regulate the um, way that future improvements will be valued and maybe include a pricing mechanism or leave the price to be set by an expert. And that can solve some of the problems involved in that sort of inevitable uh, impasse between uh, the licensor and the licensee on, on improvements. Sometimes though, automatic provision of improvements can be detrimental for the licensee. If in practice it extends the license in a situation where the original patent has expired and the licensee maybe believes that he could operate without a license. In that situation, he may not wish to be tied into the licensor's improvements. And so that's just a different um, situation, which is difficult to, 
predict at the outset. Sometimes the licensee doesn't mind granting back exclusive rights to his own improvements if these are actually intricately bound up with the original technology and can't be used without infringing the patents. In this situation, he's looking for payment probably. Okay, so this is a, there's an important competition law issue to keep in mind here um, in the realm of these improvements, um, which which is something that we need to think about in the context of these licenses. Yeah, absolutely. So exclusive grant back or assignment obligations for licensee improvements are excluded restrictions in inverted commas under the technology transfer block exemption. Uh, this means they don't fall within and benefit from the safe haven provided by that. So on the one hand, um, that's an issue, but they can be severed or if they can be severed then the rest of the license can continue to benefit from the exemption even if the grant back is judged to be anti-competitive the important drafting point then under english law is that the grant back should be put in a separate clause so that it can be blue penciled if necessary and removed without affecting the wording of the rest of the agreement and severability wording should also be included in the agreement which it would generally would be in any sort of half decent boilerplate so in a licensee who wishes to avoid an exclusive grant back will often argue that it is imp impermissible as an anti-competitive restraint, but uh, by no means all exclusive grant backs will be unenforceable. And the factors that feed into that include whether there is consideration, whether the licensor is dominant, whether the grant back is imposed across the board or only in some fields, and also whether it is severable as discussed. So whether it can be used without infringing the original patent grant backs of non-severable improvements are more likely to be acceptable so that's probably the best approach to to take Tom, that's a big area in itself of course and the last point that we wanted to touch on in this podcast is how the patent aspects and the know-how aspects of the license fit together is there anything in particular we need to be keeping in mind here and what changes when the patents um, in the license expire uh, and there are no remaining valid claims attaching to the licensed technology. Yeah, so as, we, as we've touched on, one, one of the key elements associated with the license to use the patents does fall under whether it, it is a valid claim or not. So typically, you'd have a right to continue to use the patents and you'd pay royalties on those patents until all of those valid claims have come to an end, and that would often be looked at on a country-by-country -country basis. And once that does happen, it then essentially comes a know-how-only license, and a licensee will still potentially need a right to continue using that know-how to exploit and sell its products. And to address that loss of the patent element of the license, typically what you might see is a step down in the royalty obligations, which may well be 50% or whatever else might be negotiated to compensate for the fact that there is no longer patents there, but there is a valuable element of know-how that continues to be licensed to, to the licensee. Thanks, Tom. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. So thanks very much to the team, to Astrid, Tom and Tom for joining me. And thanks to everyone or anyone who is listening. Um, please do join us for our next podcast in which we're going to focus on the protection of IP and that tricky balance of safeguarding the license force patents and know-how whilst also allowing the licensee the commercial freedom it needs to get medicines to market. So until next time, thanks very much. Thank you.